0: Hello, and welcome to The Check-In, where we check in with each other on KBIA for community connection and conversation over the airwaves. Health experts have asked us to continue social and physical distancing during this crisis, to wear masks in public places, to get tested if you show symptoms. But this isn't the first time Missourians have been asked to do these things, to practice precaution during a viral outbreak. More than 100 years ago, the 1918 flu, also called the Spanish flu, blue overtook the United States and hit parts of Missouri especially hard. And the strategies for dealing with that crisis will sound familiar. Schools and churches closed. People people were told to stay home to protect themselves and each other from what the CDC now calls the most severe pandemic in recent history. Between 1918 and 1919, an estimated 675,000 Americans died from that flu virus and an estimated $50 million people died worldwide. So here we are today. And while modern medicine has advanced, the current coronavirus pandemic has claimed the lives of more than 100,000 Americans already, including more than 11,000 Missourians. Today, we're going to look back in time and see what we can learn from how Missouri has handled crises, economic, environmental crises, but in particular, that 1918 flu pandemic. What might help us as we we cautiously proceed on our way to a new normal today. Our guest today is Bob Pretty. He's a trustee and the former president of the State Historical Society of Missouri. He's also an author, podcaster, and the former news director at Missouri Net. So we look forward to his insights as a historian and journalist. Welcome to the check-in, Bob Pretty.
1: Well, I'm glad to be here, Janet. It's nice to talk to you again.
0: Yes, it's nice to to see you by remote, (laughs) and let me remind our listeners, you can join our conversation today. What questions do you have about Missouri during the 1918 flu pandemic? Maybe you have family stories about what was going on back then in your family tree. We'd love to hear those. Or when in history have you seen Missouri rise to the occasion and tackle a crisis? What do you think we should be taking away from history to deal with the current crisis? have you also considered the stories you'll tell about this? Maybe you're keeping a journal, uh, documenting your days right now. How will you remember the current pandemic, and how will you tell this story to your kids and grandkids? And Bob, before we get to our history discussion, this morning, Columbia's city manager gave the annual State of the City Address. This was probably not the address John Glasscock was planning to make. It was as an address that dealt with a global crisis, and it showed in many of the takeaways he talked about drastic sales tax revenue shortfalls, anticipated cuts to services and infrastructure, among the many challenges he said is predicting anything with so much uncertainty. So helping sort through what we can get from this statement today that just happened this morning is Columbia-Missourian editor Scott Swafford. Scott has covered the city and politics for the Missourian for years, um, and he's joining us to just help us sort out what was in that statement. Scott Swafford, thanks for taking the time for joining us at the top of the show this morning.
2: Glad to do it, Jen.
0: Scott, what were some of the main takeaways for you?
2: Well, I think, as you just said, this was a very unusual state-of-the-city address. Normally, we get uh, a pretty good outline of what the budget priorities for the fiscal year that's coming up uh, beginning October 1st will be. But in this particular case, uh, Mr. Glasscock said we simply don't know uh, how things are going to settle out in terms of sales tax revenue, which is the primary engine uh, when Mm -hmm. it comes to revenue for the general fund, which covers the city's day-to-day operations. Mm-hmm. And they just don't have the data to know exactly how that's going to shake out. Right now, they're projecting a 10% decline in sales tax revenue over last year, which is more than two million bucks. So, mm-hmm. um, excuse me, uh, they're going to have to look at hard at uh, what they might have to cut. And uh, as you probably heard, the city manager say he's asking all his department heads to put together budgets that reflect 10% cuts, which, Mm -hmm. you know, in all my years covering city government, I've never heard anything that drastic. Uh, So that was a big thing. Uh, The other thing I think that stuck out to me was the state of trash and recycling collection in this city has reached a breaking point, and I think uh, the city manager and the city council are going to have to look hard at uh, what that's going to look like going forward, And, and Mr. Glasscock even mentioned this morning that they might have to completely eliminate curbside collection of recycling, which uh, would be a pretty drastic change. Yeah. So those are a couple of the things that just stuck out to me right off the bat.
0: Well, to pick up on that, um, Scott, you mentioned the curbside recycling. That's one thing that was hinted at that they're looking at um, that will really impact people's day to day in ways that we'll see. I think the city... um, a lot of cities always are dealing with budget uh, shortfalls sometimes or um, the impact on budget cuts. Um, we've seen this in the you know, the 2008 financial crisis and then recovering from that. Um, but as you said, it's interesting to hear your perspective that th- this seems particularly dr- drastic already, and who knows what's to come. What Were there other things besides curbside recycling or other things that you think that we might start as citizens seeing impacting our day-to-day that we take for granted that we should be on the lookout for?
2: Well, I think uh, they're going to have to take a hard look at uh, you know, uh, things like parks and rec, although parks and rec does have a, uh, sales taxes that are earmarked for it. Again, uh, because sales tax revenue is declining at such a significant pace, uh, they're going to have to be looking at uh, what sorts of services there might, they might need to eliminate, capital projects that also rely on sales tax, you know, streets and that sort of thing are probably going to have to be pushed back uh, by at least a year or two until we see how this is going to um, all settle out. Uh, so the, I think those are the things we're looking at uh, most immediately
0: Scott you also through the years have done a lot of political coverage and it was interesting that John Glasscock pointed to the failed online sales tax initiatives that have gone through the state legislature but one did not pass Mm -hmm. although he said one's in an omnibus bill (laughs) so keep Mm -hmm. a lookout for that but the the lack of online sales tax revenue he feels like is a huge opportunity cost that that we're missing here Um, any thoughts on that
2: Well, I think uh, that's something the city has struggled with for for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, even before this whole pandemic challenge, we were seeing sales tax revenue decline because of the increase in online sales. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've got the the Wayfair decision from the Supreme Court opened the door uh, for local governments to impose sales taxes on online sales, but we first have to get that authority from the state government, and the lawmakers have not yet seen fit to do that. Uh, And Mr. Glasscock mentioned today that, Since fiscal 2010, uh, he estimates this has cost the city $17.2 million, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of money. Uh, The other thing I think that we're going to see in the the weeks and months to come is there's some real tension uh, between city staff and the city council about whether we need to be raising uh, utility rates. Uh, The city staff in a recent work session proposed some pretty significant uh, utility rate increases for nearly, nearly every utility and the city council, is pretty much saying, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, they've been wanting a performance audit for quite some time uh, to look at city finances, and until they get that, they're not inclined to, to raise revenue through utility fees. So uh, something's going to have to break one way or the
0: other. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting reminder that the city revenues are a pool that we as citizens contribute to through our taxes that we agree on, through our legislative and electoral process. And the city council members don't want to go to citizens uh, to raise rates in this way. And it's interesting because, and, and the city staff are looking at the realities of, of what things cost. Um, so there is yeah. that tension and it, it does point to this crisis and it's a little unsettling uh, because we do have record unemployment We have a citizenry that's going to be struggling, and and how much can we as citizens actually carry some of this. So that's going to be a sort of philosophical tension that's always there, but of course, uh, a little bit more drastic right now. So it'll be interesting to kind of watch. And, and this all sounds rather drastic and dire, Scotch, but were there any silver linings or any positive coming out of this? Glasgow did mention that we've got reserves that he feels like are healthy mm-hmm. reserves. So good for the city, good for us in a way as a society for having those reserves. But he did say, quote, you can only use those once. So- right. Yeah. Thoughts right. on going forward?
2: Uh, well, he did say that uh, they, they've got $16.5 million more in their reserves than their targeted amount. So uh, we've already had the city council on record saying, you know, it's a rainy day fund. If this isn't a rainy day, what is? So they do have that money to kind of uh, reduce the pain uh, in the immediate future, but, but that's not going to last long. You can eat away $16.5 bucks pretty quickly. There was a, the other silver lining, I think, is uh, Mr. Glasscock mentioned that uh, many businesses and social services have really stepped up uh, during this pandemic to make sure that people's basic needs are being met. And, and, and I would echo that. I think it's pretty remarkable uh, the amount of uh, attention that people have given to that. And, and that's a that's a tribute to the people of Columbia and Boone County.
0: Yeah, there's a nice uh, a list there that he gave on uh, Businesses and nonprofits, everyone from the United Way to, uh, so I think Broadway Diner, he mentioned, yeah, you know, coming together. So that was a nice, that was a heartening list. I I agree. So. Yeah. So it's a good time. We're, we're focusing on staying well, healthy and safe, but we also have to look at the, the revenues and the city and how we go forward. So um, we will link right. to uh, the city manager's address on KBIA.org for people who want to check it out. You can also check out the Missourians coverage at ColumbiaMissourian.com. Um, thanks so much, Scott, for taking the time to join us today and let us know your takeaways. Anything uh, to add that we didn't cover here?
2: I don't think so. Always All right, we covered to it. Talk to you, Janet. All
0: right, we'll keep the conversation going. Stay well, Scott. Thanks for thanks for checking in. You too. All right, and now on to the topic of the day, where we're talking about Missouri and crisis in history. Bob Pretty, uh, thanks again for being here, Bob. So you you heard our you may have heard our study manager this morning uh, began his annual address. Actually, that address began with a reference to the 1918 flu. It was obviously on his mind, and I'm uh, reminded that you're actually looking at all of these events not only as a historian but also as a journalist, really first and foremost. Uh, Why do you think that the Spanish flu or the 1918 flu was on John Glasscock's mind? What is it about today's crisis that begs the comparison?
1: Well, there are a lot of things that are very reminiscent of the Spanish flu. Uh, It's it's something that is widespread. It is killing people by the thousands around the world. Uh, The Spanish flu, they estimate, killed 50 million people worldwide, Uh, 12,250 in Missouri. In 1918, 1919. And so we're seeing the same kind of thing. We're, we're seeing a society back in 1918, 19 that had no, no tools to use against this flu in terms of anything that was pharmaceutical. And we're in much the same position right now until we develop some pharmaceutical ways to combat it. Uh, other than rems, uh, uh, I can't pronounce it very well, uh, remsidivir, which Mm -hmm. seems to be helping people who already have the disease. But in terms of any kind of a a vaccine, uh, we don't have anything going for us now. We didn't have anything going for us then. Uh, In fact, we did not have vaccines against the flu until uh, until the 1930s, when it was when, when, the, when, this, when the virus was first isolated from people who had the influenza and we didn't get a, a vaccine until uh, the soldiers were treated with the first round of vaccine during World War II. So uh, in many ways, uh, when it comes to vaccines, we're in the same boat that people were in 1918 and some of the same advice that we're getting in how to deal with this flu of social distancing, uh, in terms of uh, self-isolation, in terms of not being in places that have uh, 10 people or 20 people, whatever the limit is that the local communities want to set, Um, the use of masks, things like this. We're all going through some of the same things that our ancestors went through in 1918 and 1919, and this is a flu that simply would not go away. It, uh, it, It hit us in about three different waves. The first, uh, first wave was in the spring, and then it, uh, that was when it was first developed out in, at Camp Funston out in Kansas, and the soldiers then were sent to Europe. It, it modified itself in Europe, morphed itself, if you will, into something far more serious, and when the soldiers started coming home, they started bringing this stuff back over to this country. And once it caught on, It just was like a wildfire. You went from having almost no cases one day to suddenly having 50, and then Mm -hmm. suddenly having 100, and suddenly having 200, and suddenly having 1,000 and more. Mm -hmm. It just spread much the same way then that it spreads now. And Mm -hmm. the way we fought it then is the way we're fighting it now with many of the same situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one reason people compare
0: it. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there, and we want to kind of unpack a lot of those things that you just mentioned. Bob, let me just remind our listeners that this is the check-in on KBIA, and we're talking with historian and journalist Bob Pretty about how Missouri has endured crises in the past, especially the 1918 flu pandemic, which looks an awful lot like today. We'd love to hear from you. What questions do you have about Missouri during the 1918 flu pandemic? Anything come to mind? Or when in history have you seen Missouri rise to the occasion? and be successful tackling something. If you're an amateur historian or a historian out there, let us know what your thoughts are. Um, and what do you think is a lesson that we should take from history? Uh, Bob, you were kind of mentioning what life was like in 1918, Missouri. Um, World War One was just ending. It's It's really difficult. There are so many things that are similar about the the flu pandemic of of 1918 when you look back on it, except for one thing, which was that uh, when things got really bad right in November 1918, there was actually a war winding down and actually kind of celebrating the end of that war. People were wanting to take to the streets. Uh, What what was Missouri like day to day and on the streets uh, as this pandemic uh, arrived in 1918?
1: Well, it was it was a time of really bittersweet emotions. We knew the war was winding down. We knew the soldier boys were coming home, and some already were starting to come trickle in, and uh, some of them were bringing this disease with them when they came back home. and That's how it got spread around quite a bit.
0: Tragic, uh,
1: but uh, yeah, and and the people, I think, I think the mood of the public in those days was much like the mood of the public now: great uncertainty, uh, great fear, uh, resentment. That we that we were having to give up our regular daily lives, uh, the the quarantine. One uh, thing very interesting, early on, one of the things that people thought might fight this flu was quinine, mm. and they pretty quickly decided determined that quinine wasn't going to stop the flu. A well, Missouri remedy. Are, one of the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, quinine was a Dr. Sappington thing yes. from Arrow Rock. He was yes. in, in the 18th, 19th, 19th century. So mm-hmm. uh, we've, we found out that quinine didn't do the trick on this flu, and now, of course, we're going through the president and his quinine type of uh, recommendations, and we find mm-hmm. that that doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. So quinine's great on malaria, but it's not worth a hoot on the flu. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that out a hundred years ago, and we're having to learn it again today. or At least uh, some people are. Uh, I, I also went through uh, some uh, some old newspapers when I was doing my research to look at the, the patent medicine ads mm-hmm. we we're, uh, were using, uh, and some of the and then some of the advice too that was coming from health officials. And it's the same kind of health, uh, same kind of advice that uh, health officials had in really? September. Yeah, in September of 1918, the health commissioner of St. Louis, his name was Max Starkloff, uh, put out three don'ts to fight the spread of disease. At that time, he put it, if it reaches here. Don't Mm -hmm. cough or sneeze unless your mouth is protected with a handkerchief. Don't, if you can avoid it, sleep in the same room with another person who has influenza. And don't fail to call a doctor when the first symptoms are felt. And then, as time went on, then we got into isolation. And then we got into local communities that were saying, uh, you you can't, uh, you cannot, do certain things uh, spend a lot of time out of doors but away from crowds open doors and windows of your homes especially in the bedroom for a few hours each day and clean out dirty corners uh, if anyone in your home has a cold or even a bad uh, bad uh, uh, even feels bad fumigate their bedrooms at least uh, if not the entire house fumigation can be done by anyone in 3 or 4 hours with sulfur formaldehyde candles which can be purchased uh, hmm. it is the duty said one of these guidelines as well as the law that every contagious disease to be reported to the city physician for the protection of yourself and your neighbors. Uh, business houses were ordered to, or were urged to fumigate their stores one night every week. Business places had to have prominent signs asking people not to cough or sneeze. And factory superintendents were told to take the temperatures of their workers every day when they came to work and send anybody home who was 99 degrees or more. These all are very familiar to us today because they're the same tools that we have to fight this until we get something that will kill it. And so uh, we're 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 living the same kind of things that our, our great grandparents or grandparents lived and And uh, this is I, I've told people you know I, it's frequently said that this is one of those things you'll tell your grandchildren about. in my case, my grandchildren are living it, so it's something they'll mm. tell their grandchildren about. Yeah. And I hope we don't have it for another hundred years. Well, so we're in the same situation, and the mood is probably the same in our communities now as it was then.
0: It is remarkable how you're reading history and it sounds like the headlines today. That's awesome. Uh, You're listening to The Check-In on KBIA and we're talking about how Missouri has responded during crises in the past, particularly the 1918 flu pandemic. Our guest is Bob Priddy, a trustee with the State Historical Society of Missouri. We'd love for you to join the conversation. We've just got a few more minutes, but we have time to take a couple of calls if you want to join in with a question or a comment about Missouri's history and crisis for Bob. Uh, How will you remember this current pandemic? How will you tell the story to your kids or grandkids in the future? Bob, what was going on at the University of Missouri campus during 1918?
1: Well, it was a mess because uh, the University of Missouri campus at that time was mobilizing for the war. And uh, of course, they had the ROTC program, but that wasn't churning out troops uh, often enough or in, in big enough numbers so they set up a special military unit that they called uh, I'm trying to remember what it was a student army training corps yes and students students could enroll in that and uh, if they didn't enroll they, they they were pretty much became draft bait and so this disease was affecting that unit too the, the campus was October the 7th mm-hmm. and uh, reopened a little bit later and then The epidemic hit again, and so it was closed again for the rest of the year. So the university was caught with trying to, number one, train a whole bunch of soldiers needed for the military effort, and two, trying to keep people from getting sick. The top yes. four of Switzerland Hall, in, in fact, was turned into a hospital. Uh, I think some fraternity houses were turned into hospitals. In fact, a lot of fraternities um, were, were struggling so much that the university basically took over fraternity houses and let any student who was uh, on campus stay in a fraternity house, even though they weren't a member of the fraternities. So the university was trying to fight this thing on several fronts, and uh, they had a lot of students who were sick, and of course the town of Columbia had a lot of people who were sick. But the university was was trying to deal with several issues when it came to this flu, and they finally basically just shut down the school
0: All right. halfway and, through the
1: semester. Well,
0: and apparently football was shut down, which we know that was disappointing. Right. Uh, no, no football season from 1918. No, no homecoming. Uh, that well, was totally that, skipped.
1: That, 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 that also just goes to show they can do it if they have to.
0: Yes. Now, yeah.
1: back back in those days, back in those days football was nowhere near the big business it is now. Mm. And the financial impact on the school and on the football program if they shut down a season is going to really be a disaster. They could get away with it then because they were playing on Rollins field. At, uh, okay.
2: Bob
0: you are yeah, your line, your line went a little uh, sketchy just there for a moment, but I think we caught most of what you're saying. Let me just remind people you're listening to the check-in on KBIA. We're talking about Missouri has responded to crises in the past, particularly the 1918 flu pandemic, but also other crises. You're welcome to join the discussion at 573-882-9136. Bob, let's take a call from Lisa. Uh, Lisa, thanks for checking in with us. Question or comment? Hi, Janet. Um, Hi. Yeah, just a comment. Um, I've noticed
1: that I, I've got a mom that's 76 years old, and she was telling me that she was um, sort of intimidated by somebody at a store because she had a mask on.
2: And I realized that there really is a difference. It, it's very politicized. I mean, people that you know think you should have a mask and some other people think that you shouldn't because it means something
1: politically, and it shouldn't. It should have nothing to do with it. And it's um, really gotten there, and she's in another state, and uh, I've heard that from friends of mine as well.
0: Uh, Lisa, what a great point. Uh, Thanks so much for calling in with that point. Let me uh, go to Bob uh, for reaction. Uh, Lisa's bringing up something very interesting, that uh, basic messages that you would think that a coronavirus can unite us, nothing can unite us like a pandemic, but yet even this has uh, pointed to divisions in our society and politicization. I'm not going to blame one side or the other. It's just something that's happened. Bob, is this something you've seen in history?
1: Well, we certainly didn't see this kind of politicization with the Spanish influenza. People, There were people who disagreed with all of the quarantines and all of the masks. Uh, it wasn't political. It was a personal decision that people were making. And those days was different. In those days, the sheriff would go around and nail, in Jefferson City at least, would go around and nail an orange card to the door of any house that had a flu victim in it. And that that meant, you stay away from this house. We don't do that now. We expect people just to take care of things themselves. But it wasn't political. Uh, I think the war had unified people, but also this influenza epidemic was unifying people, too. Although there were some people who who were complaining. For example, churches. Some churches didn't much like it because churches were banned in many communities. But it's, it's, it's it's a familiar thing, except for the politics involved.
0: Yes. All right. Uh, let's take another call, Bob. Um, Tim from Jefferson City is calling. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining the discussion. Did you have a question or a comment for us?
2: Yes, I did. Uh, Mr. Pretty, if you could comment about the interaction between Mayor Keel
1: and Dr. Starkloff in St. Louis and the benefit of it compared to
0: other city, other large cities in the
1: U.S. at the time.
0: All right. Sure. Great question, Tim. Thanks. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. Sure.
1: Well, the mayor the mayor was firmly behind his uh, his city health uh, guy Starkloff and uh, Starkloff said later he was he he really regretted the need for putting in, faith in, in force in enforce regulations that uh, interfered with business but he said he would do it again. He was going to place the lives of people ahead of business and the mayor backed him on this and that's one reason why uh, uh out of 35,000 cases in St. Louis, there were only about 3,700 deaths, and the death rate in St. Louis, other than other than uh, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. St. Louis had the lowest death rate in the country of the of the of any of the forty three largest cities in the country in those okay. days, because because Starkloff demanded isolation, limiting number of people who could get together, uh, closing businesses, closing churches, things like this, and it worked in St. Louis, and St. Louis at that time was one of the largest cities in America, something like third or fourth, I think, and so St. Louis. Uh, had that had had only 3,700 deaths. I think Kansas City had 2,300, but Kansas City was much smaller in those days. But uh, so that's Starkloff had the backing of the mayor, the firm backing of the mayor, and in this case, we had a person who knew about health who was taking steps necessary to retard the growth of this thing, and he had the backing of his administration, the city administration. Uh, And that was very helpful, and that was very instrumental in St. Louis.
0: All right, very interesting. Tim, does that answer your question? Do you have any comments or further questions about that?
1: No, thank you, Janet. Thank you, Mr. Pretty. Have a great day.
0: Yeah, thanks for the call, Tim. Uh, Yeah, fascinating. Bob, we are actually, believe it or not, already running out of time. Um, I'm, it's fascinating to get your perspective on this history, but also your perspective as a journalist uh, who's very familiar in watching things as they unfold today. Uh, anything to leave us with about our state's response in history and what we should take away from that on our state's response today as someone who covers the news today and is very aware of the history?
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in the daily coverage, but I, did, I certainly do watch the governor's briefings, and mm-hmm. I think the governor's briefings have been very helpful. Uh, there may be some glitches from time to time in the system, and he they they openly admit those so far. So I think those have been very helpful in telling us where we are and what we're trying to do is at the state level, and we didn't have that kind of communication back in those days. The only media in those days was newspapers, so we're we have the capacity of of knowing more and finding out more and being able to ask more than we did 100 years ago. And I think that's very beneficial in taking care of the public mood and in taking care of the public generally.
0: All right. Great last words. Thank you so much, Bob Pretty, for joining us on The Check-In today. You know, we have to have you back with the State Historical Society current executive director, Gary Kramer, um, and others to continue this discussion about Missouri and how we've dealt with crises in the past because we have really only just started this conversation. There's a lot to learn.
2: Great. Be Thank glad you to so come much. Back.
0: Okay, thanks, Bob. All right, that's it for the check in. Thank you also for checking in with us today. Thanks again to Bob Pretty and also Scott Swafford, Columbia, Missourian city editor, for joining us. You can check out the Columbia, Missourians coverage at Columbia, Missourian.com. Uh, you can also see the uh, City manager's address at KBIA.org. Um, if you're listening and needing help, you can call 211 for the United Way. You can also go to ComoHelps.org where you can donate money um, or get help today and every day. The check in is produced by Christopher Hustudge and me with KBIA News Director Ryan Famuliner, Zia Kelly, and Hannah France. Uh, here, Have a great day. We'll be back here tomorrow to talk about virtual theater and performance during crises. Looking forward to that discussion. You can join us tomorrow. Same time, same place. Until then, I'm Janet Saidi. Stay well and stay in touch.